The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We're live here at the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. As you'll hear in the background, there is some noise. We are smack dab in the exhibit hall. There's lots of things going on. We're at the Discovery Data Booth. And this is your host, Doug Heikinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that point in their lives to just go for it, throw caution to the wind, and become successful. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz the most helpful place advisors can come to to grow their minds and their businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And our guest this afternoon is Ali Matamid, who's the founder, partner, and portfolio manager at Invenomic Capital Management. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. First, where did that name come from, Invenomic? Sure. So um, when we created this fund, you know, when I started in this business about 17 years ago, the goal was to build a kind of an all-weather fund, something where, uh, you know, when the markets were undervalued, we were able to take advantage of it by, you know, going long. But at the same time, when markets got to be more frothy, we were able to introduce a short exposure into the portfolio so we could manage people's risk, protect capital at those points in the cycle. And sort of when they got beat up again, you know, take off that short exposure and then, uh, you know, have a nice run. So we could part- you could generate alpha on the long side, on the short side, but also help position people right. Uh, so I wanted to originally name the firm Autonomic Asset Management. And your autonomic nervous system is the part of your body that operates on its own. So, for example, your pancreas operates, your heart beats, and you don't have to think about it. So we wanted to create a firm that people didn't really have to think about, do I need to swing in or this or out of this? Uh, unfortunately, Lehman Brothers was in the bankruptcy estate at the time, and they had an autonomic uh, as one of the uh, as one of the copyrights or trademarks they had, so uh, my lawyers said, "Don't do that." And um, <laughs> so the suffix "nomic" means generally accepted by the laws of nature. So uh, economic, socionomic, ergonomic, these aren't sort of theorems that are proven, but. Uh, the theories themselves have been proven over time or, or held true over time. So Invenomic is investing in a way that's generally accepted according to nature. So we don't, you know, what we are is the modern interpretation, technologically enabled uh, interpretation of those original hedge funds uh, from, you know, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So you guys are active managers. We are very active managers. I think if you were to look, we have probably among the very highest active share of any funds that are out there. Which is very different than what the industry has experienced over the past 10 years. So let's talk a little bit about active versus passive and how you view that. Sure. Um, You know, I think that they both have a place in people's portfolio, but I think that we've gotten... Uh, a little bit past what is reasonable at this point in the cycle. The, the first thing I would point out is, you know, we've been in a, in a bit of a growth cycle. Generally speaking, when you look at passive management uh, with a very high degree of correlation, uh, when you're in a growth cycle, passive management outperforms. When you're in a value cycle, active management outperforms. Uh, this goes back sort of 40, 50 years you can track this. So, so passive management is not a new thing and its outperforming is not a new thing. 
I think one of the things people miss is it's that growth cycle that's made these massive trillion dollar companies that if you just had more and more of your money invested in them, you would have been successful. But when that goes the other way, that's not where you want to be. Uh, and then the other thing that I think people don't appreciate is how much they're overpaying for the actual stocks that are part of these indexes. Uh, one of the things that you know we notice, we look at all these companies uh, every day, uh, one of the things you notice is one of the weirdest anomalies. If a company is in the small cap S&P 600, and it moves to the mid-cap 400. So that means that that company was incredibly successful, is growing, and has migrated from small to, to mid-cap land. What do you think happens to the stock when it, when it moves up to the mid-cap index? It, it, it actually goes down 8 to 10 percent. Right? So that's because the amount of over-ownership of passive of certain parts of the market, so for example, small caps, is so uh, extreme that just by graduating into a less owned index, well, it goes down 8 to 10 percent. So buying a small cap passive ETF, you are by nature overpaying by 10 percent for all the stocks in that portfolio. So if you are doing that to save 50 basis points or some odd 100 basis points of management fee, you're effectively underwriting a 10 to 20 year investment. Uh, by doing that. So I think that it's just gotten a little bit past what's reasonable. I, I definitely see that there's a part uh, for passive management. It's tax efficient, uh, especially in large caps. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I do think, you know, people need to be really careful. Generally, how we've talked about it is that, you know, our fund can fit really well with a passive, let's say, an S&P type exposure because we have such a high active share that, you know, putting, let's say, 20% of our fund with S&P, you end up with about a 45 basis point blended fee with a whole lot of alpha, capital preservation characteristics, and tax efficiency. So you're seeing the growth cycle in big headwinds. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, that, that there starts to be a limit on just the absolute size of some of these companies. You know, if you think of a trillion-dollar company, that means that company is worth $150 for every man, woman, and child on Earth. Right? So there are many of these companies now. So just the population of Earth can't grow enough to support some of this. If you look at cell phones, for example, uh, there are 6 billion smartphones on Earth active. There's only 7 billion people, and, and many of them can't use a smartphone or too young or, or perhaps too old. Uh, you're finding cell phone sales are down year over year. You look at Apple's earnings, they're lower than they were in 2015. Uh, you look at online video, that's been another big driver we hear about with you know, YouTube and Netflix and Apple going after it. Uh, if you look at the data from Cisco on how much online video will be watched and back into what that implies, it suggests that every man, woman, and child on Earth will be watching two and a half hours a day of online video by 2021. Well, there aren't more people on Earth, and the hours are limited, right? So, and these companies, in many cases, are still very expensive, even on those numbers. So, um, you know, that, that gets harder incrementally. You look at some of these business models that have been amazing successes. And technology really just eats itself up. That's the thing about technology. I mean, we went through a huge tech cycle in, 90, in 99. Uh, so many of those companies are gone now. And so you look at a company like Google. They, they have this search engine that's been a, a massive success. Well, 
Artificial intelligence is the future. Artificial intelligence means I don't need to look at 20 Google advertisers on my search results to determine the best pizza joint around here. Right? I just turn to my AI machine and say, where shall I go eat pizza? And it sends me there and it makes a reservation. So, you know, there are so many of these monstrous, monstrous companies that are sitting on all of the cap of the market. Uh, Apple and Microsoft, like I mentioned, are equal to the size of the entire Russell 2000. Right? Just their cap. So, uh, and, and they're having headwinds. Uh, if you look at some of the, the SaaS companies, 70 of the top 100 SaaS software companies are just recreations of an old category. And they look like they're really fast growing because they're just killing the old company that basically did what they did in 99 on an enterprise basis. But as that saturation hits, it's going to get really difficult. And we see it. It's sort of 40% penetrated right now. So that first 40% to get to, you had a big pawn to attack, right? So when, when you went from 20 to 30%, well, you had to get 10 of the 80, right? When you go from 40 to 50, first of all, your growth rate is slowing. Uh, secondly, you now have to get, you know, uh, 10 of the, of, the, of the incremental 60. So it just keeps getting more and more difficult. And if they don't make money while they're doing this, they're in a lot of trouble. So where do you think this is going and what's got you excited about what you're doing? Yeah, so we are value investors. I mean, we take a value approach. I've been doing this for 17 years. I think, you know, over the long term, over my career, I was at Boston Partners. Uh, you know, we, we had a great run there. Uh, and in my new firm, you know, we're doing a great job. We're off to a, a great start. Uh, value investing. So what has us so excited is that we've been able to deliver so well with these massive headwinds in our face for a very long time. And it feels like those headwinds are dissipating. And not only that, it just as I, as I go about my day-to-day -day job, you know, we look at companies, we read financial statements, we're listening to earnings calls. You know, I remember when I started in this business, those earnings calls, those transcripts were, you know, 22 pages long, and there were 14 people on that call for a billion, billion and a half dollar company. I mean, now, you know, we joke with my team, you know, how long was the earnings call transcript? It was seven pages. There was one question. You know, no one cares. It's being invested on by passives, by quants, um, and there's not that fundamental digging. So when you look at that pond that we're attacking, we're, there just doesn't seem to be other people that are going after that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's probably the most undiscovered part of the market and yet, you know, of the investing universe, it feels like, and yet it's, it's considered, you know, among the most liquid, biggest markets on the earth, right? So uh, you, the competition has evaporated. Anyone who is a value investor, most of them are out of business, you know, right now, or they've, or they've changed their stripes to try and survive. Well, we haven't changed our stripes, and we've been doing a really good job, and we feel like this market's coming to us. So if we could keep doing what we've done, and the market comes to us in the way I think it will, you know, we should be in really good shape. Are there any value companies that you can mention that really had you interested? I mean, I, I don't want to go into specifics on yeah. the portfolio yeah. generally because, you know, i got to go through my compliance office. <laughs> we didn't do that here. Um, but I would say, you know, there are, there are a lot of interesting companies, and I think you'll find a lot across, for example, the industrial space. I think one of the, you know, one thing people, for example, don't appreciate is automotive. Like, what do you think is more penetrated, uh, the Internet and cell phones or cars? I would think cars. It's couldn't be farther from the truth. So, for example, you know, we sold uh, globally, let's say, just, just shy of 100 million cars last year. Uh, in the United States, we sell about 17 million cars on a 340 million population, right? So about 5% of the population. 
right? So now if you look at 70 million cars being sold around the rest of the world on that six and a half billion in population, people don't have cars, right? If you look at the line that shows like global auto sales, it's just a constant line up. And I think if you were to go to the same rates as, for example, the United States, that 100 million cars would be 300. And I don't think it'll get to that extreme, right? But that suggests that, you know, you're at a 33% penetration of automotive. Well, you're at about a 70, 80% penetration of internet and cell phones. So, you know, you have a world where this narrative is created. It's just false. The internet, cell phones, technology, the way it was able to, to sort of pervade and get through the entire world so fast. It just happened so fast. I don't think people realize that we're already there. We got there. There's not much to go. Um, so, for example, auto. auto, And I would say like we like component companies in automotive, for example, because I don't care if it's a Chinese manufacturer. I don't care uh, brand, if it's a German, if it's an American, if it's Tesla. If I'm making seats, for example, they go in all the cars, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of parts of the industrial economy that suffer this year, perhaps a little prematurely, and suffered from a lot of what's going on internationally. Uh, trade was an issue, uh, you know, supply chains got disrupted a lot, so it created a lot of pressure. But I think as you go into next year, you could have an environment where even as the market may not do so well, as we may go through a slowdown, you know, you're going to have these companies that where ordinarily they would then be following, you know, and having those issues, they're going to be cycling this difficult year that they encountered that was kind of, uh, you know, just from political reasons and things like that. So they may actually end up looking pretty good and having better growth than what are meant to be the growing companies. So does all these big companies dominating these indexes and the growth have you nervous as well? It has me excited, really, but <laughs> that's because we don't do that, right? Um, so nervous is, you know, we just go by a process of just trying to, you know, we use a lot of technology in our business. So we use a lot of technology to scour the universe, to look at opportunities that are out there. Uh, we feel like that there are so many that aren't being looked at, and so, uh, you know, that's really exciting. Um, and, and I think that the, the other thing people miss, you know, you, you you hear people talk about value and growth and they talk about, you know, things like mean reversion. I really don't think this is about mean reversion. Um, mean does revert, but the real reason is an economic reason. And so, so for example, if I had gone out and started a software company and I put a million dollars into it or five million dollars into it and it turned into a 20 or 30 bagger, the private capital that's sitting on the sideline, they're not running out to buy my company at that incredible valuation. Generally speaking, what you'll find is, is that the VC that backed that company, the number two that was at that company, uh, they find it more attractive for themselves to go and start a competing company. And so that, what happens is then, you know, let's say that, that one or two million turned into a hundred. Well, you know, those VCs come in and the next time they put in 10 and it turns into 40, well, it starts hurting those growth companies that, that are, you know, getting taken down by the same people that built them. This is what we see in technology. Technology eats technology. Um, and so that's part of what make what I think is going to make some of this turn. I've, I've done a number of podcasts today, and every single person I've talked to is incredibly excited about what they do in the industry. So when did you think you decide, you knew you wanted to do this? Yeah, so um, 
I've known I wanted to do this for a long time, so really from 14 years old. So uh, I lived in England growing up on a, on a farm in England, and I was somehow a math whiz. And um, uh, How do you be somehow? I don't know. Somehow. I wasn't as... It wasn't like my love, but I just somehow was good at it. Um, and I had a cousin who, uh, you know, he went to Caltech, and then he ended up running the derivatives desk at Bankers Trust. And I had moved from England uh, to the United States. And so I was like 12 years old at the time, and I was getting $5 weekly allowances, and I traded baseball cards, and I built a several thousand dollar baseball card collection. And so he came from New York to visit us in California, and he's like, all right, so you're a math guy, and you were trading baseball cards like this, and I think I know what you should do when you grow up. So uh, really from then, it's been my total goal to do this. So every bit of my training has been towards that. So when I went to school, I studied you know, accounting and economics. Economics is really the theory of what's going on. Accounting is the language of it. Uh, so I felt like that was a good starting place. Uh, I did seven internships in investment management while I was at UCLA. The good thing about having 400 students per class is if you do tests well, you'll be okay, and you can use that time productively for your own interests. So, mm -hmm. you know, I found that valuable. Um, I, w I had one job that I wanted to get. To I mean, literally, every step of my path has been something that I've been wanting to pursue, right? So I had one job I wanted, and it was kind of to put me in that position. I went to Harvard Business School with the goal. So, uh, you know, I just love it, I think, in, you know, innately, the trading aspect and then the an analytical aspect. Um, and, you know, it just, just makes sense. It's something I enjoy. And then founding your own business, scary thing. Yes, quite scary thing. So when did you give yourself permission to take that step and do it? I mean, it, it, I just sat there. I was like 38 years old. I worked at Boston Partners for a while. We had 12 years. We really just crushed everybody in the space. We were... We had beaten the S&P by 5% a year for 12 years while running half the market exposure after fees. So we were up 12, S&P 7. We beat the number two fund in the category by 2.5% a year over that time. So we really, really did a good job. I won manager of the year for Morningstar. But I just felt like it wasn't the right environment for me able to do my best work. And I sat there and I was getting stressed out and my blood pressure was rising and I was unhappy. And I just felt like if I'm sitting here in 12 years in the same place and I haven't really put my best foot forward like I know how, then I'm not going to be a happy older man. And so it just, I had to do it, right? I had to get into a position where I had full control over what's going on. Uh, because if you believe in what you're doing, then you need that in order to be able to implement. And obviously I listen a lot to the people around me and I, we, we have a really great collaborative team environment. Right, but in the end of the day, uh, you know, we've had a lot of success. I've been the central part of it, and I have a lot of ideas. And and having that control is really, really important. And then also not being in a in a corporate structure. I think one of the things that's plagued Liquid Alts is that, um, you know, it's a highly compliance-intensive process because you're basically doing an IPO of a fund from registration to marketing to everything. So what's happened is the, the vast majority of liquid alts funds have come from a corporate parent that has been sitting there saying, we need to move our fees up. How do we move our fees up? Well, if we add a short portfolio. These aren't like native strategies built like people who believe in them uh, that were able to, you know, really go work hard and get somewhere with it because the hurdle rate of that compliance is... It, it, it is just too high. And so, you know, for us, for me, you know, going out on my own firm, 
having that independent mindset, you know, doing what's best, not having to take ass beyond. I mean, this is a capacity constrained $3 billion strategy. So if we go beyond $3 billion, take your money from us. Because mathematically, I can walk you through why we shouldn't have more than $3 billion. Right? So every aspect of it is designed with a long-term focus, with a focus on you know, build good relationships with great advisors that stay with us, understand our strengths and weaknesses. And you know, it kind of goes back to that whole auto autonomic, right? You know, build something that you know, you build, build tight relationships, build trust, build understanding, and, and keep them you know, for a long time. And it's made you happy. I'm so, I love it. And the people I work with are the best. And the relationships, you know, it's just different, right? When you believe so strongly in what you're doing and you, you know, you get to pick the people that you work with. Uh, you know, and the other good thing I, I think that, you know, sometimes corporate structures don't provide is, you know, I want everyone on my team to be better than me. At the end of the day, I'm the majority owner substantially of this company. Uh, so I win if the guy I hire or the girl I hire is smarter than I am better than I am, faster than I am. So, you know, from a cultural level, your goals are different. Your approach is different. And so they feel that, right? Mm -hmm. If they're better than I am, well, I'll move aside and I'll let them do it, right? right. I hope one day that, that's the case, right? So it's just different. What advice would you have for that person sitting on that trading desk that has dreams like you? Um, never just listen to what someone says. Understand it. And always be the first to say you don't understand something. Because the best type of knowledge is like basal knowledge, right? Because uh, so many of the ways people go about things is just based off what someone else said and then they just repeat it. They don't understand why it happened. And if you do it, if you go about life that way, you could never come up with different improvements because you don't have that core knowledge, right? So you can learn a lot from people. My team, you know, they learn a lot from me. But at the same time, I want them to question that. That should not be something that they, they learned. It should be something they come to believe because of their own thoughts and experiences. So um, never just learn it. Understand it and believe it or question it, you know. But don't just move on because someone told you that. How do people find you? Um, they find us, so we're, uh, Bivix is the ticker, B-I-V-I-X. You could buy it on most all of the platforms that are out there. Um, you can go to invenomic.com, I-N-V-E-N-O-M-I-C.com. Uh, you know, in the 40 Act, Bob Marks, you could reach out to. Um, but we're available on the Schwab platforms if you call us. We really want to have tight relationships with great advisors. Uh, we had a, like, for example, we had a rough August, but because you know, we were down like four or five percent, you know, it was a, there was a massive momentum rally going on. What that meant was that if you had bought stocks that were up just because they were up and shorted stocks that were down just because they were down, you would have made a lot of money. You would have made like 40 percent for a three month period. That's not what value investors do. We buy stocks that are down. Right? So when you understand, you know, just if buying a stock because it's down makes it go down even more, then that's an awkward environment. But we, you know, I picked up the phone and called the investors that we have. I said, look, you know, we're having a bad month. Do you want to talk about anything? And pretty much every single one of them just says, we know what we got. We believe in you. We believe in your process. Just get back to work and stop bothering us. And we had a 10% September, right? So like those types of, the investing in those types of relationships, people talk to me about marketing and they're like, well, doesn't marketing take away from the portfolio? I'm like, well, you know, when I needed to be really, really, really attentive, I didn't have to say a word to anyone because I did it on my own pace at the times when it made sense. So um, that's kind of how we approach it. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I learned a lot, and I hope our audience did too. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We'd like to thank the folks at Discovery Data for having us at their booth, the people at Schwab for allowing us to do this at their Impact Conference, for everyone at Iris Media Works and the Permission to Succeed production team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thank you so much for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here.